If you look at how people did that in the past, you probably had some sort of tier in the middle, at least if you had more than a couple teams that act as almost like remixing those backend APIs into front-end APIs. And sometimes it's called a BFF tier, a backend for front-end tier. Sometimes it's called a product API. Sometimes it's called a you know, gateway, you know. I've never heard of the BFF tier, but I'm all about the BFF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my BFFs, we make the tiers. Yeah, and and you better be BFFs with your BFF tier, <laughs> you know, team, because every single screen in your app, you're going to need something from them. Couchbase is a modern, multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase developer portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources, including the Couchbase developer community forum. Ready to get started developing on Couchbase? Visit couchbase.com slash new to Couchbase. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. It's December. We're here. Sarah, how are you doing today? Good, Ben. How are you? How's your day? It's a, it's a beautiful day out here in Florida. <laughs> My day could always be better because I could always be in Florida with you, Sarah. But we have a great guest today, Jeff Schmidt, CEO of Apollo Graph QL. Jeff, thanks for coming on. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Um, I'm Jeff. I'm the CEO, one of the co-founders of Apollo GraphQL. Uh, and so we make Apollo Client, which a lot of people use. It's a, a cool time for us. I think we just crossed the 2 million download a week mark for Apollo Client, our first 2 million download week. So it's been really fun seeing the growth over the past couple years, really, I guess, since we first released it in 2016 and all the cool stuff that's happened in the GraphQL community. Yeah, it's really exciting to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So GraphQL, obviously, I, we have a, I have a great dashboard where I can see the tags and how quickly they're growing on Stack Overflow. And GraphQL has definitely been taking off like a rocket this past year or so. What does Apollo bring to GraphQL? We built a lot of open source tools that are probably used by many, if not most of the people somewhere in their stack. So there's Apollo Client, which is a great way to consume a GraphQL API, whether you're doing that with React or Angular or Vue.js on the web. There's also a version of it for iOS. There's a version of it for Android. There's Apollo Server, which is a great way to take the existing APIs and data sources you already have and very quickly build a graph on top of that. So that answers the question, hey, I've got a whole bunch of existing stuff. Maybe my backend team isn't going to implement GraphQL for me. That's the usual case. How do I, as a product engineer, be able to quickly get all that stuff onto the graph? And that's a good place to get started. And then uh, we have some great tools like Apollo Explorer. How do I compose queries, browse my graph, you know, view all that, the resources available to me? All the way into, you know, as you start to go into production, you want some good analytics and monitoring on your graph. We have a commercial SaaS tool, Apollo Studio, to help with that. And then when you start asking, how do we go from one team to many teams on the graph? How do I build an enterprise scale graph? You start to want what we call a graph router, a way to sort of take a GraphQL query and break it up into multiple teams. We have Apollo Gateway for that. And you know, a whole set of technologies to help you manage a multi-team enterprise scale graph and all the stuff that goes into that. So you add all that up. It's pretty much a full stack data graph platform that lets you take all of your existing data sources and services and query them all in a unified way with GraphQL for a pretty cool integrated experience. And of course, it's all 
GraphQL standards compliant, so you can mix and match it with all the other stuff in the GraphQL ecosystem. If you want to use something like GraphQL Java, or if you even want to consume the APIs just directly through, like just like hitting a REST endpoint, you know, there's a lot of flexibility to kind of pick and mix the components, you know, to build your GraphQL solution. That's great. Uh, that's really fascinating. One thing that you said that I'd love to dive into is uh, you see product engineers that want to use GraphQL, but their backend team isn't building it in. So they're using it anyway. So are they, in that case, are they just building a layer on top of an existing API using GraphQL? Yeah, you know, the way I think about it is this, that, I mean, that layer probably already exists. And this is more about how we rethink the relationship between those microservices or whatever those backend resources are, and then the consumers of that. Because if you think about it, if you're building backend services, you probably think about them in a really modular or even orthogonal, if I want to use a big fancy word, kind of way. You know, I maybe got my product service and my inventory service or my newsfeed story service and my comment service. I might put all those in different tables or services or however I model it. They might even be maintained by different teams. They might be written in different languages. We might have more or less of them. And it's really good if those things are modular and do one thing well and solve one kind of business concern. But then if you think about how we build applications, in the application, we kind of slice it a different way. Any given screen in an app, any given web page probably contains data from multiple services. So the challenge we have is we have one set of APIs that are these sort of very modular, you know, separated APIs, which is how the services team probably thinks. But then as product engineers, we need to combine that data uh, to build these solutions or user experiences. So if you look at how people did that in the past, you probably had some sort of tier in the middle, at least if you had more than a couple teams that act as almost like remixing those backend APIs into front-end APIs. And sometimes it's called a BFF tier, a backend for front-end tier. Sometimes it's called uh, a product API. Sometimes it's called a you know, gateway, you know. I've never heard of the BFF tier, but I'm all about the BFF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my BFFs, we make the tiers. Yeah, and and you better be BFFs with your BFF tier, <laughs> you know, team because every single screen in your app, you're going to need something from them. So, and it just gets and the problem with the BFF is it gets to be a monolith. You end up with so much code in that thing, so many people touching it. And the question becomes, yeah, 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 how do we how do we just make that go a little faster, build a better experience for everybody? So are you saying that in this, so like a pretend scenario, I work at realtor.com or some like huge monolith application. I'm guessing, I don't know realtor.com. I'm just guessing. Yeah. They could have a really agile, really microservices based application. But so I'm working there. I have a team of six engineers and we particularly work on the cards for houses and our data structure is spread across several different platform engineering teams. So in this case, if my team wants to use Apollo tools, I don't need to get buy-in from the entire company. We can just use it as a way we manage our services from our team. Absolutely correct. You know, that was something, and, and we've been building GraphQL tooling since 2016 and talking with many different people about what their adoption pattern has been. And for Apollo, I like to think about our mission is, we want to help app developers help the world. We just believe that app developers, you know, it's like apps are the point of value creation. Like we create all this, we've got all these transistors and operating systems and CPUs and such. All that becomes valuable ultimately when we can put pixels on a screen, make something that people can really use and touch. So that's really sort of our fascination or obsession is, is how we enable app developers and product engineers. 
So we really talked with all the people that were adopting GraphQL, and we said what's worked and what hasn't in different organizations. And then we really designed Apollo around that. And so what we heard is, you know, it should be very easy for a product team to adopt. So that's the whole idea of Apollo Server. You can very quickly, you know, just with a few lines of JavaScript, you can kind of block out your schema. You can say, hey, I've got customers. They have first names and last names. I've got houses. They have addresses. They have GPS coordinates. I've got, you know, all, all the other sort of domain objects that exist in realtor.com. And then you can just write a couple lines of code uh, with Apollo Server, if you choose Apollo Server for this, couple lines of JavaScript to map those fields on those objects back to different APIs or data sources. And then once you've got that, you know, you can, that's a Node.js process, and you can deploy that as your mapping layer from those existing services to a graph. And you can usually get into production with that pretty quickly and you know, just kind of prove out that GraphQL is valuable. And that just reduces the number of moving pieces you have. And it's a really magical experience to see how little work you have to do. And it is some work, I'm not going to lie. And now you can like type these GraphQL queries into something like Apollo Explorer or GraphQL Playground and like see your data in all these different joins and, and forms. And that's a great way to sort of bring GraphQL in to your team and let everybody kind of see and touch it and feel it and see the see if it's valuable and see if it works for you. And then often after that, you know, there start to be some more conversations, more teams, you know, they might want to get involved in different ways. Maybe they want to add some GraphQL support to your existing, you know, Ruby on Rails backend or your existing Java backend or there's a lot of reasons why, you know, as you build out your architecture, you might get more teams involved. But yeah, it's really designed from the ground up to be incrementally adopted and to make it very easy for product teams to be able to get in there and get it up and running. It seems to me that we've kind of gone, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. It seems like we've gone from monolith applications to microservices and that the thing that microservices has done is create a need to normalize the data going to microservices. It's like everything got, there was like a sprawl of the data and with platforms like GraphQL and yours, the idea is to reduce that sprawl and make it more accessible for the rest of the people using that layer. What, what do you think about that? I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's just driven by, we're doing more and more stuff with computers. We're doing more and more stuff on the internet. And I think the other pattern we're seeing is, it may not only be services and resources you know, inside your company. You might be pulling in data from other SaaS services or other business units. It's like, if you think about everything that goes into an app, it's just not gonna be scalable or sustainable to have one team build the whole backend, or maybe even to have one company build the whole backend. We've gone from a world where it was a web server talking to a database to really this whole like ecosystem of stuff that we're mixing together to build an app. But that's also true on the other side. We used to have a pretty simple sort of way we were delivering this. Like we delivered into a web browser with HTML and CSS, and that was good enough. And then we added mobile devices, and people started to struggle with, how do I keep feature parity between my web team and my mobile team? I'm re-implementing a ton of stuff multiple times on each platform, and each platform's a little different and tough to make them line up. And now we see more and more people want to explore this whole world of IoT devices or like new platforms that are showing up every time, or they want to embed their functionality inside you know, other people's websites or apps. So it's just turning into more of a many-to-many -many ecosystem rather than a one-to-one -one ecosystem is the way I think about it, because it's not like a single thing we built. Those things now exist in this larger ecosystem. So sometimes I say like, 
REST APIs, it's a very point-to-point -point way of thinking about things because it's based on these endpoints. It's like, if I want one thing to talk to another thing, I build an endpoint, I wire that up. And I think the data graph is kind of, it's more like a dial tone. It's like, I've got a phone book of all the stuff in the cloud and I can dial up anything I want and I can conference call together anything I want. Like if I'm building a banking application, I want to show all you show you all of your finances on one screen. I can kind of dial up the customer file. I can dial up the checking account service. I can dial up the mortgage service and get the balance of your mortgage. I can dial up the investment service and I can almost conference call all that together to get a complete view of you know, your stuff. I can do that all in one round trip. I can do that all in one query. And it's almost like doing for the cloud, for cloud services, what SQL did for the database. Because before SQL, you know, you had to write all the code to go fetch the, <laughs> fetch the stuff from wherever it was and join that together. And it's saying, hey, we want that same abstract declarative way, that same abstraction layer between our apps and our backend that has this kind of declarative query functionality. So we don't have that tight coupling anymore. And that gives us more flexibility. It's just things get more complicated. It's interesting you mentioned that. I've seen a few services recently that offer the ability to pull in all of your different financial data from like six or seven providers and then sort of scan that and you know display it for you with a new set of analytics. And I actually remember thinking, how is this possible? There's so many security hiccups and you know, so much you know, regulation around all of this. So in a modern, you know, yeah, mobile app now, you do have the ability to play nicely with a bunch of different data sources, which is fascinating. So let me ask you a question. Maybe we could do a little bit of history sort of where you got started. I, I saw some pretty fun stuff on your LinkedIn. Uh, I think this says, artificial intelligence research consultant. As a punky dropout kid in Cambridge, Mass., I studied Zen Buddhism, went to Burning Man, and tried to figure out how to radically decentralize the internet. I'm going to stop there. Isn't it always your dream <laughs> yeah. to have someone read your LinkedIn to you? <laughs> <laughs> Just going to stop there. Because I, I don't see a lot of LinkedIn's that start with that. I thought, I thought that was pretty bold. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about where your roots, you know, where you came from before you got into the position you're in now. Sure. I've had I've had quite a path. So I grew up in rural Missouri in Arkansas. You know, I just got fascinated with computers. There weren't that many people that I could learn from, but I I taught myself and I entered the, you know, one of the one of the things to do in Arkansas was to enter the science fair competition. So I was that was a place where I could I worked on different uh like I worked on some computational geometry problems and I worked on some data compression stuff and I won a lot of like kid awards, like to the point that they flew me to the Nobel Prize ceremony to sit at the kids' table and be the table ornament, right? <laughs> and based on that, I thought it was too cool for school and dropped out of MIT after a term and uh, started a company called TunePrint, which was one of the first audio fingerprinting companies. So the same type of technology, it's in something like uh, Shazam, right? That was my first experience with venture funding. And so I, I learned a lot about running a business at kind of a um, young age. And then after that, I wanted to just kind of maybe catch up on all the college stuff that I, I hadn't done and like learn how to be a human <laughs> being, not just a coder. And yeah, so this was, I guess, the early 2000s before AI was really the kind of thing it is right now. But I had some AI consulting jobs that I used to pay the bills. And yes, that was um, you know the time in my life that I discovered Zen Buddhism. I'm the first generation of my father's family to not grow up on a Mennonite farm. So <laughs> that just kind of maybe set me on a track of learning more about the different ways people see the world. Yeah. And I guess the other thing that's relevant, I worked on a lot of different, you know, some stuff that was totally open source and grant funded and some stuff that was like various like seed stage startup funded stuff that was all with this goal of like, how can we use the internet to 
<laughs> in some way, there'll be a force for human good. Like we've created mm. this amazing technology. It can connect so many people. How much thought have we really put into how we bring that back to human well-being and human connection? And in my 20s, I was really focused on kind of what I saw as the toxic or corrosive effects of centralized power structures. And I thought maybe if we put the technology in people's hands, like that'll solve the problem. And I think what I came to learn is, you know, you really need to engage with the full kind of spectrum of the humanities to understand how society is going to work. Like one person isn't going to have the answer and it's not just technology we need. How old do you think you are when you realize that? Because I feel like, <laughs> well, I'll say this. I feel like our field attracts a lot of people with the initial mindset of if we can just empower people by giving the things that we need and everything's going to be fine, right? Like that's, that's, the, that's the challenge that we need to solve. And then I feel like there's a point where you realize this is actually a very dimensional problem and I, I am one person and I can't understand that. I think some people realize that, some people that don't. But yeah, is that an age thing or an experience thing? What do you think made you come to that conclusion? Well, I think being in a CEO role where you really have to spend all of your time thinking about the well-being of your team and the experiences people are having at your company and the well-being of your customers and the well-being of the community and the ecosystem. I think that's something that you know helps you see the larger perspective. I also think that some of it's about history. You know, I, I remember I moved to San Francisco at the end of 2006 and uh, Techstars were this totally discredited idea. We tried that in the 90s and we know that doesn't work. <laughs> like the idea that we'd have like vans that deliver your groceries, that was such an obviously stupid idea. I can't believe people invested in that. The idea that there'd be like bike messengers that deliver snacks like Cosmo.com, these crazy dot-com excesses will never be repeated. <laughs> and here we are. But in 06, I just remembered it was like the, the people that wrote code were like the just one more kind of weird freak that existed in San Francisco next to all the other weird freaks. And it was like, oh, hey, it's so cool that like you like coding. You know, you just don't care what anyone <laughs> thinks about you. <laughs> That's so cool. We accept you here in San Francisco. <laughs> And then of, of all the different subcultures in San Francisco, it ended up being, you know, the techies that, you know, made billions and billions of dollars and really changed the economic landscape in many ways in San Francisco. And I just think it's easy to lose track of how quickly this whole thing has moved. And I think a lot of the very idealistic ideas that I think people had about, you know, information technology 10 or 15 years ago, hey, we just need to give people this and it will, technology will always act to you know, enable and support the <laughs> oppressed and the underdog. Well, actually, technology is force multiplier for everyone. It's just adopted by the outgroups first. It's definitely going to be in, it's going to be adopted by everybody eventually. So, all of which is to say, I think that like what's happening is uh, we're getting a lot more sophisticated as a society about technology. We're having the conversations we need to have, and it comes from experience. We're having these conversations about you know, what our obligations are as tech companies. We're having these conversations about the impact that apps can have on the world. We're having the conversations about the fact that if we have more people from more backgrounds able to write the apps, if we can write the apps faster, if we can get more voices at the table, you know, I think that's ultimately what's going to give us that positive impact. If we can make app development radically easier, faster, and more accessible, if we can empower more people, my own personal you know, horse in the race is, I don't think I'm smart enough to know how we're going to use technology the right way. But I think if we can get a lot of voices into the dialogue and we can give everybody good tools, I guess I still haven't totally driven up, given up that dream that technology is an empowering force. Yeah, I, I charge that as well. I hold on to that too. 
But once a year, I have the existential question of, is the internet a net positive? And <laughs> so far, I've always come to yes, but there's been some heated debates internally every year. <laughs> I think of it as, how do we make the most of the internet? It's here to stay. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, we can't cancel it. What, yeah, right. what's, <laughs> what's the team we need to build? What's the team we need yeah. to build? What's the coalition we need to build? What are the conversations we need to have? to make the most of this incredible gift we've been given. And that's that's where I try to sit. you know. And I see some things that challenge that for me too. <laughs> but I just come back to, we're all on a path, we're all learning, we're learning as society. And I, I have some hope and some faith about where this is all gonna go. Yeah, you gotta fight for the internet you want to see. That's, that's you know, you can't give up. I noticed that, you know, some of what you had was a, a determination to build stuff that made it easy, you know, to bring together the the data and make the complexity of modern apps easier for the folks who are building them. And this dates all the way back to 2011 and you know, creating uh, Meteor.js. So can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the, the ideas you pioneered there that then went, went on to be part of Apollo? Sure, yeah. You know, 2011 was a really magical time because this was sort of when apps were starting to happen. And by apps, I mean not HTML and CSS that were pushing down to a web browser, but actually there's software in your browser, there's software on your device. And we're asking, how do we get the data from the cloud into this, into this, you know, essentially a client-server architecture is what we would have said back in the day. And Meteor, I think, was one of the first things that really tied all the pieces together for people about how if I know JavaScript and only JavaScript, I can build one of these modern apps that has this client-server architecture. You know, I think we, we think it was March of 2012 that we released Meteor 032, the first demo, and that got popular really fast. I remember that by the time we released Meteor 1.0, I think there were local Meteor meetups in 134 cities around the world on the same day, all user-organized to celebrate Meteor 1.0. And the reason for that was there was such a hunger to find a new way to build applications. And I think the thing that Meteor does really well is it integrates all the pieces for you. So you know it's going to line up, how do we do my view layer? How do we do our, our state management? How do we do you know the um, communication over the network? How do we even you know, connect to a database like MongoDB and constantly watch the database for changes so that whenever anything changes, it's pushed to live updates on the screen? And I think for a lot of people, Meteor was the first time they'd ever seen a lot of that stuff or even seen basic stuff like full stack JavaScript package management or see things like hot code reloads. It was the idea that we integrate all the pieces together, we can build a great experience. And the goal was kind of build something like the Ruby on Rails for JavaScript. And the direction JavaScript has gone is you know, there's a lot of people who use Meteor and they love it, but there's a lot of other people, probably a lot more people, that want to put together things from a couple different libraries that you can modularly combine to build your own stack. And I think partly that's because technology is changing so quickly. There's new stuff like Apollo all the time. You want to have that flexibility. And what's more, you know, and, and so the trade-off for Meteor is you get this great package integrated experience, but you really have to follow all of Meteor's opinions. And we were always under a lot of pressure with Meteor to take the pieces of the Meteor stack and make them useful separately. And Apollo was really our first big push on that. We wanted to build the Meteor 2.0 data system. We didn't want it to be tied to MongoDB. We wanted to work with any backend data source. And we were seeing how quickly React usage was growing. And we said, it's very important this be incrementally adoptable. This has to be something you could bring in to an existing application. So we want to build a new data system, works with any backend. Uh, it should work with any front end, not just JavaScript, because JavaScript didn't go the way some of us were hoping on mobile for building mobile applications. And React Native has, has like been a big boon to that. But, you know, like the Cordova, you know, PhoneGap approach, you know, 
didn't go quite as well. And we also wanted something that scaled to the world's largest teams, the world's largest websites. We'd started to see enterprise adoption with Meteor, and we had a better understanding of what the needs of the enterprise were. So we said, what if we took this data layer, which is one of the things that makes Apollo really great, what if we make it work with any front end, any back end, scale to massive scale, and release it as an independent, incrementally adoptable component? And that was Apollo, and you know, it really took off like a rocket, and it's just been amazing to see how quickly, you know, taking that technology, you know, and all the lessons learned from that and making it something that really follows the needs of what people need for like a much more larger audience of people who don't necessarily want a fully opinionated stack. It's been really cool to see how that's gone. So what are you working on now? What are you excited about for 2021? There's a ton of stuff up and down the stack. I think one of the things that's really exciting is the scale that we're seeing GraphQL adopted at. And so one of the big questions, one of the big questions that comes up is, okay, so I've used Apollo Client and Apollo Server or Apollo Client and GraphQL Java or whatever I might use to get kind of a first team up and running on the graph. And you know that team may be, that team may be really happy, but then you have this epiphany, which is, hey, what about all the other people in my, in my company? They might want to use this too. I've gotten a lot of benefits from this. And people, people see some huge like, benefits in terms of how many features you can ship in any given unit time when you don't have to build all that product API code. And so what happens is people start asking the question, how do I scale this to multiple teams? And a lot of questions come up because you don't really want, if you've got 10 teams, you don't want 10 different graphs. You actually want one graph that spans 10 teams. And so that brings a lot of additional stuff you need. You're going to need a schema server that you can put all those schemas on. And then you probably need to wire that schema server into your CI/CD process so that whenever anyone changes some part of the graph, you're validating it that against everyone, everybody else who refers to that part of the graph. So we're doing a lot of work to support multi-team use cases. Um, we already have a great offering there, but as this just gets rolled out to just ever larger environments, you know, two years ago, we thought a million queries a month was a pretty big user. And then last year, we were starting to talk to people in the billion query a month range. And now we're having some folks that are, you know, scaling toward a trillion queries a month. And so just following this like thousand X scaling of like, you know, sort of highly scaled graph rollouts. And, and, you know, with that is also a corresponding scale in the number of people on the graph, the number of different services, um, all these technologies like Apollo Federation, which is how you can take multiple services, combine them into one graph and do foreign key references. Apollo Studio, which is some of the pieces around what are the workflows and business processes and testing flows and security and so on around this. We're continuing to improve all those things. But at the same time, we're also making big investments in you know, putting up a lot of our resources to continue to contribute to the open source projects like Apollo Client, Apollo Server. We can expect to see big improvements in the uh, uh, graph router technology that connects multiple uh, teams into one graph. We can expect to see continued progress on Apollo Client, Apollo Server to just give a great experience. Uh, we're especially ramping up our investment in mobile in terms of the Apollo client versions for iOS and Android. We're also looking at how do we make a great developer experience really from minute one. So Apollo Explorer, I think I touched on that earlier, is a great way to take a graph and browse it visually and build queries, whether you um, are just getting started and you just want some basic functionality like browsing your graph and maybe saving some queries or whether you're working with a truly huge graph and you have like many, 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 many pages of schema and you really need a search way of thinking about your schema, not like scrolling through it. Apollo Explorer is a great tool for that. 
that's live now. We're continuing to improve it. The other thing we're doing is we're continuing to make it very easy to get all of that full suite of Apollo tooling, like Apollo Explorer. Very easy to get onto that from your first minutes of your development. So it's a whole mix of stuff. A lot of, you know, really, really continuing to track very closely what people want in the open source tools and libraries, but also continuing to track, you know, for some of the management tools and the scaling tools, um, what people need and continuing to supply that. What do you think is the driving force behind your community? Is it people that are using your tools, passionate about it and want to change things? Is that what you're seeing the most of people jumping in and, and helping from outside, you know, your employees? Yeah. I mean, I remember... All the way back to 2016 with the first version of Apollo Client, our motto was by the community, for the community. And the fact that we thought about GraphQL as a coalition, like how do we do this together with other people? Like that was one of my big learnings from Meteor. Meteor, we sometimes thought that we had all the answers or we needed to have all the answers and we could solve all the problems or we needed to solve all the other problem, all the problems. And one of the, I think, big course corrections we, we made with Apollo you know, for our culture and our team is saying, we really want to build a broad-based coalition and do this together with everyone. You know, I think of us as being facilitators, stewards, like we're trying to help people have great tools. And I think when you think about the business model, I think the reality of quote unquote open source business models is that you don't pick your business model, your business model picks you. Like if you want to start an open source company, you have to pick something that is naturally has a part that's naturally open source and a part that goes with that or is related to it or adjacent to it that's naturally a SaaS product or something like that. Mm, that's interesting. So think about GitHub. You know, It's like Git's open source. Git has to be open source. The reason Git's open source is because BitKeeper wasn't open source. and <laughs> Nobody <laughs> liked that. You know? and, the, and the community <laughs> fixed that very quickly. The community is very good at fixing things <laughs> that aren't right. And the community um, is going to... Uh, accept us and support us as the steward of those open source projects for exact, exactly as long as that serves the community's interests. <laughs> and we understand that, which yeah. is why we come from a point of view of serving the community. At the same time, GitHub, GitLab, uh, Bitbucket, those are all great businesses. You know, People want those things to be managed services, or they want those things to be you know, commercial on-prem products. That's the place where people actually want it to be that way. So you have to listen to people and say, how do you want this? And if there's a commercial piece they want, that might be a business. If there's not a commercial piece you want, it might be more like my 20s where, you know, I <laughs> ate ramen and wrote open source <laughs> software and did consulting for myself. You know, both of those can be great ways to show up professionally and, you know, just just know what you and your family uh, want or need at that mm -hmm. point in your life. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you said about if it can provide, uh, you know, value to the individual and they feel that they can contribute, that's really powerful in community building. And then if there can be a managed service where you get, you know, involved with a corporation that has, you know, a higher bar for what they require, that's a great place to sort of build the business. So those two things seem to sit well side by side. Yeah, the reality is that in many of these cases, you find out that a lot of the economic opportunity is in the enterprise because many, many, many developers work in enterprises and enterprises are solving some of the world's largest problems and have, you know, resources uh, to match that. And so... Enterprises end up having enterprise needs. It's a different set of needs. And so it can, and they want to pay for software. They want to have a relationship and they, they want a business relationship, not just files they found on the internet. And they also just have more things that they want that they wouldn't necessarily expect or desire to be open source. I think it all comes down to empathy. It comes down to listening to people. It comes down to understand what do you want? And if you say, hey, mm -hmm. this is the way the technology should be based on my ideology, 
and you don't listen to people and, and understand, is it meeting their needs and what do they really want? You know, you can, you can miss some cues, but if you listen to people, they'll tell you, this is how I would like you to release this stuff. And this is how the relationship I'd like to have with you. And sometimes that means understanding, you know, you may not come from a business background, but that journey of listening and empathy may lead you to discover that many of the people using your software are actually businesses. <laughs> and <laughs> you, you may have to step outside of your comfort zone as a developer and understand their world and understand how they want it supported and how they want it scaled and the kinds of functionality they want, how they want it delivered. But you know, I think there's um, there's a lot of win-win opportunities there. You know, the open source community is a very innovative community, often looking at what's next, often asking what's technology going to change. And I think some of the ideas that we see will continue to spread more broadly. And I think among that will be the idea that uh, we need to create empowering work environments and we need to create tools that really empower our users. And there's just so much power for everyone if you do that, because people get so excited and they they want to contribute. And I think it has to start with listening and empathy. All right. It's that time of the episode. Jeff, I always read out a lifeboat badge. So that's a badge that you can get on Stack Overflow. If you answer a question that had a score of negative three or more and got it all the way up to 20 or more with a nice accepted answer. So today there is an error in an XML document, one colon 41. And we have an answer. Ensure your message class looks like below with a lovely code snippet. So thank you to SLL. You earned yourself a lifeboat badge and helped spread some knowledge. All right. I'm Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can find me at Ben Popper on Twitter, and you can send me an email podcast at stackoverflow.com if you want us to talk about something on the show. I'm Sarah Chips, director of community here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on GitHub at Sarah Joe. And if you're looking for uh, Christmas presents for the holidays for kids in your life, check out Jewel Bots. And I'm Jeff Schmidt, CEO of Apollo. Uh, really great to be on the show. And you can check me out on Twitter at JeffQL. Yeah, I actually went there. <laughs> <laughs>